Welcome to Fred Basin's Diaries, read here by Clive Farahar. This is a book collector podcast sponsored by Adrian Harrington Rare Books of Tunbridge Wells. Fred Basin's Diaries, Part 2 1926. I've read a play. It's called The Unknown. I find that it was originally published at the Aldwych in 1920. Why it was ever written beats me. Some dramatic club is going to have a bash at doing it. It seems a waste of time. It's all on the meaning of life and the destiny of man. It's not a play, it's an argument. Blow me, I think I'll write to Somerset Maugham who wrote it. He'll be interested. Or will he? Later. Does it pay to be cheeky without rude? God knows, but I've had a jolly nice letter from WSM and he says he intends to pop over and see me when he's next in London. Well, I must get together some of his books and maybe he will be in a smiling mood and sign some of them. My Liza is battered, he won't like to see that. Or will he? Bennett likes to see a well-thumbed copy of his novels in a shop. Authors are funny. If you show them a clean copy, they says, this is a good book to read. And if he shows them a battered one, they say, haven't you a better one than this? Some folks are never pleased. Later, another letter from Maugham. Will I get him the Tudor translation of the works of Cervantes? Blimey, a posh order. Bloody good job he doesn't want the original manuscript. He's calling next week. I have a dozen books for him to autograph. Blasted cheek. Well, he can refuse. He can just please himself. It's the gentleman's pleasure and privilege to pay the bill when he takes a lady out for the evening, but not in Woolworth. The rules of etiquette there don't work out quite like that. You find a girl and you suggest the flicks, theatre or a posh dinner up west. And if she's no one's steady bird, she says OK. If she pays half the expenses of the night out, you know it's all temporary and you have no claims on her at all. Well, you have your date and you see her home. If she doesn't indicate that a kiss is required, you just shake hands and suggest another date. If she's enjoyed herself and you pull no fast ones, she may say OK and name time and place. At the second meeting, if she doesn't keep you waiting for more than half an hour, consider you're in her good books. And if she's there right on time, consider she's friendly towards you. Now, if at the close of this second date she insists on paying her off, then just consider that you're still on APRO and being sorted out and picked over. She may say this time that there's no harm in a kiss, so you give her a hearty one or not, according to what sort of night you've had in her company. Were you bored? Did she get fidgety when you talked about yourself? That kiss of yours will tell her lots, and maybe more than you intend to tell. If the next date is in the afternoon or early evening and it's still light, folks see you together and it's a move up for the affair. If she takes your arm on this outing, she's getting warm. Now, after the stroll, you suggest the pictures, and she doesn't mind if she does, which means she will. You pay, and bang goes three and sixpence of your pocket money. Now, on the way home, what happens? Does she talk of paying her off? If she does, then let her, for she's still cautious, and this may go on for months. But suppose she makes no suggestion whatever of paying her share, and suppose that near her home she stops, and of her own fee will, kisses you, and is obviously prepared to linger in that amiable frame of mind. Then, boy, you've clicked. She's accepted you, 
and she is steady, and you have great pleasure in paying for all her entertainment till she finds a better bow with more of the ready, or gets tired of you, or you will have a bust up and find another piece of homework more to your liking. If you look after her well, you probably have the supreme pleasure of keeping her for the rest of her natural life. 1927 Mr Arnold Bennett did a jolly kind act to me today, and that shows him to be a very human man, provided you don't hear or worship him, and provided you can make him laugh or interested. I passed on to him a jolly good after-dinner story which Percy told me, and A.B. let out his funny cackle. Then he took from his pocket a postcard photograph of Chaliarpin, the Russian singer, who sings low, and he said, You'd like this, wouldn't you, Mr. Basin? Me. Oh, yes, if you don't really appreciate it. And it was autographed to Mr. Arnold Bennett, souvenir from Chaliarpin, and it is genuine, for I have won from him. I naturally asked him why he didn't want to keep such a valuable piece of property, and he said, I enjoy singing, and would say no more. any rate, I shall have it and keep it, from one great man to another, and then on to me. Paris on a fiver for at least four days. The fiver was given to me by a very rich man in the manner of a bet. I was to start out with only five one-pound notes, and if I sent him a postcard from Paris on the third or fourth day, I could keep the money. But if I had to wire over money in order to get me home again, I owed him a fiver. I got there all right, and I fixed up at an hotel in the Rue Pigalle, at a very low rent because nearly all the other folks were coloured people. Now I know no French at all, save yes and no, and I know no one in Paris. But you can't keep a cockney down. And I very soon made friends with the coloured folks, and they were all, for the most part, musicians in nightclubs with a sprinkling of singers and uncommonly clever dancers. I like a bit of music, and could play reasonably well on seven or eight instruments, so I managed to hold my own. One of my fellow residents was a part-time journalist, and a sort of freelance who knew, it seemed, everyone by sight who was worth knowing, although he didn't know them personally. We were passing a large, impressive-looking cafe. When he stopped, then opened the door, looked in, and beckoned to me. He pointed to a tall, thin, sad-looking man who wore thick pebble glasses and no smile, and he said to me, "'That's a genius!' He looks blooming sad, I said. Nothing cheap in here, but we'll go in, my friend answered. We sat very close to the door behind the lace curtains, and we ordered citron. The genius sat in the corner with a dapper little man with grey hair, merry eyes, and a face built for smiles. The little man must have been at least six inches shorter than the genius, as they sat down, and had to look up at him. I was dying to ask my good friend the name of the genius, I was yet shy to do so because I felt I was expected to know. We didn't look foreign. He could have been a school teacher or even a vicar on holiday. I tried to guess, thought of all the literary giants and stabbed at Hemingway and then H. de Vere Stackpole. Then I gave it up and I asked, Well, who is the blooming genius? I said. I can't guess any more. That, my friend, is James Joyce, and consider yourself lucky to have seen him. He's the greatest literary figure of this or any age, but few people realise it. I couldn't think of anything to say, so I said nothing and went out, leaving the genius and his friend singing. They were singing in fine tenor voices, a song which seemed to have a simple tune, but a lot of complicated verses. Maybe it was a folk song of some sort. At any rate, they were both merry and bright, 
and I was pleased. I had seen a merry genius on my first visit to Paris. I am today exactly 20. The world is before me and I want to get on. But so many drawbacks, I open my mouth and seem to put my foot in it. Yesterday, I went to a party given by Stephen Graham, the author. It was a sort of little tea fight at four, and there were ten people there. All it seemed were either authors or artists. I was the only bookseller. I felt very uneasy, because outside books I couldn't talk with authority, and they all talked on their own books. And outside Mr Graham's, I read none of them, or knew none of them by name. I took my autograph album, but on second thoughts I didn't bring it out. It was so very kind of Mr Graham to give me this break, but until I've actually written bound books, I do not feel that I'm entitled to go to a literary do. Here I had my first Russian cigarette and I met a female writer. She had a nice shaped bust and looked right for the plucking, but it's so obviously Chelsea. An SW3 and SE17 will never mix. I wonder what is beauty. I could sit me down and write an essay on beauty. To me, beauty is a lake in a park with ducks on it and children playing round the edge. Beauty is two neat, small breasts with pointed nipples. Beauty is the colour of cheeks of a girl of twelve. A boy playing with a coloured ball is beauty. The binding of a Sandgorsky-bound book is beauty. There's beauty in a library of calf-bound old books and in an old man before a fireside in his slippers. There's beauty in a mother's smile for her firstborn. Beauty is good, good is beauty. And looking round, I often see good and it's beautiful. But there's not much beauty in Woolworth. But here, I can buy my stock cheaper than anywhere else, so I must remain till a good lady comes along and I will follow in her footsteps. I will not live in Woolworth a moment after I marry. I will cut and run and turn the page and make a clear break of it. Trade is now more steady and the Camberwell Public Library is helping me with orders. I must remember to get books by W.B. Yeats and, of course, W.H. Davis. I seem to neglect poetry. I had enough of it at school. But I think there's beauty in poems, and perhaps it'd be well as to learn by heart some of the short verses. One never knows. I need a shot. My room is full up. 1928 the Thames overflowed near Vauxhall Bridge this day and 14 people was drowned. I didn't get the news till one o'clock in the morning and by the time I reached there, men had built a sandbag embankment. The water was about four inches from the top of it and on the retreat. This is a terrible happening and I feel someone is to blame. Surely more constant inspection of the rise of the tide could have made the police take all the people from the basement dwellings opposite the river. I was able to comfort a poor man of thirty-something whose wife and child had been drowned but I felt sick over the old thing. I learnt that Alf was drowned, another school pal gone. I got home at four in the morning and then slept eight hours solid, it being Sunday. Later, I went to Spurgeon's Tabernacle this evening and got a little nearer to God. The Thames incident has upset me. Fourteen innocent lives gone. Who's to blame? Armistice Day. Two minutes silence, and I was silent. I was at the bloody dentist, and a mass of nerves. I fear two things in life, black beetles and dentists. Trade last week was very good, £4.18 shillings, made on the week. 
mainly because I was able to sell Butler's Way of All Flesh, first edition, 1903, Crown Octavo, G. Richards, red cloth, gilt lettering. My copy had 12 pages of adverts and was a very good copy. I took £3.10 for it, making £3.2 shillings and sixpence profit. Wonderful! Got Christmas cards from Zane Gray, Austin Freeman, Baroness Auxey, Anne Penn and Herb Williams. I now have to dress and go to Masculine Show at St George's Hall because the man who made the magical apparatus has asked me to see if I can solve the mystery of the disappearing motorcycle trick that he's made and that Masculine is presenting today. I have a free seat. Later, the motorcycle didn't disappear. It caught fire. No panic, but a nasty wet mess on the stage. Olive Grove sang after the act had gone, and the magic of her voice was recompensed for all the time I'd wasted. I want her autograph. That was part two of Fred Basin's Diaries, brought to you by The Book Collector. It was read by Clive Farrahar and sponsored by Adrian Harrington Rare Books of Tunbridge Wells. If you enjoyed it, why not consider subscribing to The Book Collector, a quarterly journal in print and online for all those who take pleasure from books. Thebookcollector.co.uk has all the details. (laughs) 